Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, and if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew rack in front of you if you're a guest with us today. Uh, we walk through the Scriptures here at Bloomfield Baptist Church, and we are currently walking through the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews was a letter, we, we don't know exactly who wrote it, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, the writer wrote this letter to Hebrew Christians. These were believers in the early church who had come from a Jewish background and were being persecuted for their faith, and many were tempted to walk away from their new Christian faith and return to Judaism. And so uh, the writer has been laying out a very clear argument and understanding of the supremacy of Christ and how Christ invites us to enter into His rest, that, that ultimately that the only way we will find rest in God is through Christ. You know, he's given a warning concerning uh, those who might not believe or obey. He said, look back to the Hebrews in the Old Testament during the Exodus, and some of them couldn't enter into the promised land because of their unbelief, because of their disobedience. So don't be like them. Hold fast, stand firm, press on. Don't neglect this salvation that Christ offers. And he's begun to, to really unpack and explain what it means that Jesus is our great high priest. But then as we saw last Lord's Day, the writer pauses in his argument. And in his pause, he spent some time correcting those who were immature in their faith, who were content to just have spiritual milk and not move on to solid spiritual food. And he, content, he continues today in chapter 6 to, to speak very clearly to those who are immature in their faith and to issue one of the strongest warnings we have in the entire Bible. And it's a warning that has brought much confusion to many in the church. And so we need to look at it soberly. We need to look at it uh, asking that God might give us clarity as we walk through this passage today. So we're going to pick up in the context of this warning now uh, that the writer of Hebrews is giving to these believers. And so we're going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, and go down through verse 8. And out of reverence for God's holy word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this passage for us. And this is what God's holy word says. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. You would pray with me. 
Father, there is a, a strong word here. But we may not hear it. That there is encouragement here, but we may fail to receive it. Left to ourselves, our eyes will be shut, our ears will be shut, and our hearts will not believe. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do a work of the Spirit to, to help us understand this word today and to help us live, to live according to this word today. I pray, Lord, very specifically that we might come to a deeper understanding of what genuine faith looks like and how we might walk in that faith. And I pray that we would endure in that faith until our dying breath and that you would do this work in us and among us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When Kevin was 10 years old, he walked the aisle of his local church. He made a profession of his faith, and soon after that, he was baptized. As the years went on, Kevin got very involved in the church's student ministry. He, he went on several mission trips with the church. In fact, by his senior year of high school, when the church had a youth Sunday, uh, he gave the sermon. And after that sermon, many in the church came up and, and encouraged him, affirmed him. Some even said they believed that, that God had gifted him and was calling him into the ministry. But then Kevin went away to college. And he faced an environment and temptations that he had never faced before. And within a few weeks, Kevin stopped attending church within a few months he began to question his belief and within a few years he completely walked away from his faith he, he had fallen away Sheila was a single mother in her 30s she had two children life was hard she worked two jobs to make ends meet and at one of those jobs a co-worker noticed how she was distressed and overwhelmed and, and invited her to come to church one Sunday and so after their persistence and invitation after invitation finally when she had a Sunday off she came to church and she immediately noticed something different. People had this sense of joy and excitement about God, something she'd never experienced when she had sporadically attended church growing up. She heard the pastor preach and give this message of salvation, of hope, of peace that she desperately wanted in her life. And so when the pastor offered an invitation at the end and invited people to pray a sinner's prayer, Sheila responded and, and she prayed that prayer and, and immediately felt this sense of relief as if a, a burden was gone from her. But then as the weeks went on and as the sermons began to address very specific sin issues, issues that Sheila felt were very personal in her own life, she began to wonder, is this really for me? As it became clearer and clearer that she would need to walk away from things in her lifestyle and interests and desires, she decided that maybe this faith wasn't for her at all. And so she stopped attending this church. She fell away. Gerald 
it's quite a different scenario. Gerald was one of the founding members of his church at a very young age, about 12, 13 years old. He and his family were part of a group of families who started a church. And now at the age of 86, decades later, uh, Gerald prides himself on the fact that, that he has been in that church just about every Sunday since he was 12 years old. He, he prides himself on it. He's a good guy. P- people love Gerald. They love seeing him on Sundays. But if you were to ask Gerald what the sermon was about, he wouldn't have much to offer you. He really doesn't think much of the sermons. In fact, he sleeps through most of them. He really doesn't think a whole lot about God's Word. He thinks that it's, it's antiquated and not so relevant for us today. But his philosophy is to, to do unto others as you would have them do to you. And he feels like if he can just be nice to his fellow man and, and do the religious things he should do, that, that, that he's going to be okay. But what Gerald has in common with Sheila and Kevin is there seems to be no true indication of genuine faith in his life. If we went around the room this morning, each of us could probably tell a story of a Kevin or a Sheila or a Gerald. People we know that if you've spent any time in this or any other church, you've seen people come in enthusiastically and then over a course of weeks or months or years that they leave and then perhaps get to the point where they will say they don't believe at all. That this is a very personal scenario for some of you, some of us who have family members who who no longer attend this church or any other, who perhaps were very active, very involved, very quick to talk about their faith at one point, but now it seems they, they always want to change the conversation when faith comes up, when invitations to church come up, and then even some who would say that they don't believe at all. Well, what are we to do with these folks? How are we to view them? It's very easy for us to look and say, well, well only God knows the heart, and so we, we, we can't really tell what's in their heart and just, just pretend that everything's okay, but, but God's actually given us some indicators of the heart in His Word. He's helped us not to see as He sees, but to perceive what genuine faith looks like. And then He's given us passages like the one we come to today that that give a very stern, sobering warning concerning those who fall away, who walk away, whose faith is not genuine. And so I want to walk through this passage today in hopes that that we might better understand what these marks are. That we better, might better understand how to respond to the Kevin and the Sheila and the Gerald. Especially if we are one of those people. If we have them in our lives, in our homes. How do we respond to them? Well, I think the Scripture helps us to understand that. And it begins with discerning and understanding what genuine faith actually looks like. And God has given us much along those lines, especially in this passage. So we'll, we'll start there with point one in your outline. The marks of genuine faith. The first one that we see here is that a genuine faith desires solid spiritual food. So someone with authentic, genuine faith, they, they have a desire to grow and mature in their faith. That's why the writer here says, The beginning of verse 1, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He's just finished giving a very clear argument about those who are immature in their faith and those who are mature. We looked at this last Lord's Day. 
We see a similar argument in 1 Corinthians 3 that for those immature in their faith, they're content just to have spiritual milk. They, they don't ever want to go after spiritual food, and yet we should grow immature just like a newborn infant begins on milk and then moves towards food. In Christ, we begin with spiritual milk, but we should long to grow in our faith, to feed in our faith. And he says here we're to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. This doesn't mean that we're to abandon any part of our faith. It means we are to grow up in our faith. In fact, when we think of that word elementary, probably what comes to mind most is elementary school. It's that time of years. We mentioned this morning we're going to be praying tonight for our schools, for our teachers, for our students. This is the time of year, back to school time. And so this is the time when people move up in grades. Well, we do that even in the church. We have our promotion Sunday. I believe it's next Sunday where we move up in grade. But imagine what it would be for you. If you have a child who last year was in the fifth grade, and this year they're going into the sixth grade, and they come to you after a week or two of school, and they say, well, Mom, Dad, I, I honestly, I, I don't really like sixth grade that much. And it's kind of hard. that They make us do this thing called homework now, and I, I'm not really excited about that. I, I really like the fifth grade. In fact, by the end of the year, I feel like I had a pretty good handle on the fifth grade. So if it's all the same to you, I'm just going to go back to the fifth grade this year. It's a lot easier. I'm a lot more comfortable there. Now, if that scenario were to happen, what, what would you do? I doubt that any of us would say, oh, okay, that, that sounds fine, you know. Whatever makes you happy. <laughs> no, we, we would encourage them. We would, we, we would press on them. We, we would help them to learn about perseverance and, and press on and try harder. In fact, if you have children who've kind of grown up and matured through grace, it, it just gets harder. And so you're, you're there to, to kind of push them and teach them and, and help them in whatever way you can because this is a normal maturing process. It's not normal or healthy to repeat the fifth grade 40 times in a row. And yet, that is what many people are content to do in their faith. And that's the argument here. That the writer's saying, listen, you've been through the elementary school of your faith. It's time to move on. It's time to grow. It's time to mature. And yet, for so many of us, we don't want to move forward. We're content on milk because we're comfortable here. We don't want to move forward in being convicted in other areas of our life. We don't want to move forward in spiritual disciplines, spending more time in the Word and prayer, deeper doctrinal understandings of the Word. No, we're, we're content just to stay over here with the basics. And the writer here is, is warning us, if, if that is the case with us, if, if we don't want to move forward, if we have no desire to do that, that, that may be an indicator that we don't actually have genuine faith. His warning here, I believe, is very specific in the context of these Hebrew believers who were facing great persecution and temptation to abandon their new Christian faith and go back to Judaism. Because the, the doctrines that he mentions here were, were doctrines that were consistent in Judaism and in Christianity. I mean, you didn't have these two completely different religions that the Christian faith is built on the foundation of the Jewish faith. And so these foundations that he mentions here, you know, eternal judgment, the resurrection of the dead, these were things taught throughout the Old Testament and they were consistent then into Christianity. So he's saying you're comfortable with these things that you kind of grew up under, but you need to move on into a further deeper understanding of the faith. 
But they know if they do that, that's going to cause greater tension between them and the Jewish community that is beginning to persecute them. One commentator says it this way. This list may suggest that the readers were attempting to somehow remain within Judaism by emphasizing items held in common between Judaism and Christianity. That they may have been trying to survive with a minimal Christianity in order to avoid alienating their Jewish friends or relatives. And friends, I think that we see a similar thing in the church today. I mean, many of us are content with the absolute minimum form of Christianity because that's what we are the most comfortable with. Our attitude is, what is the basic minimum level I can enter in at to be saved and be okay, and I'll, just be, I'll be safe there. Because the reality is that the more we grow in our faith, the more we mature in our faith, the less comfortable we are in the world around us, and the less comfortable the world around us is with us. And so then we begin to see this very clear separation between us and the world. And, and we, in our hearts, our, our gravitational sinful heart is towards a sinful world. We want to be accepted by the world. We want to fit in the world. And now there's this tension there. And if you've never felt that tension, that is a biblical indication that you don't have genuine faith. But, but for some of you, you know what that tension's like. You, you know what it is to be the only genuine believer in a group of friends in, in a school, to have very few other believers around you, to be in a family where you're one of uh, a few believers, maybe the only believer, and there's this tension there. And the more you grow in your faith, the greater that tension gets. And if you don't have that, the question is, do you want it? Do you desire it? Do you want to move past the fifth grade of your faith? If you don't, your faith may not be that genuine. And point two, we see that genuine faith is a gift of God. The writer says that this maturity will come, this we will do if God permits. It's a reminder that, that God is the one who is sovereign over salvation and sanctification. He, he's the one who brings the growth in our life. And so the gospel message is not one of go out there and just try harder and do better. No, the gospel message is that this is a gift from God to receive. And He's the one that does the work. Now, Paul says it well in Ephesians chapter 2. Hopefully a passage that's familiar to many of you. Beginning in verse 8, he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a lot there. But I just want to zone on that phrase. It's a gift of God. It's a gift. I have mentioned before, I love Christmas. I don't enjoy walking into stores in July and seeing Christmas stuff up, but... But I love Christmas because I love giving gifts. In fact, I'm really bad sometimes about waiting to give gifts. I want to give them because I just love to give them. In fact, Sandy and I are coming up on our anniversary on September 2nd. I've already given her a gift. She's already given me mine. Part of that's because, and some of you identify with this, we've been married 24 years, and that's kind of the, you know, the anniversary at that point. It's the whatever's broken. You, know, you get that, and that's your gift. And so we have lots of broken things, so... The one that comes close to the anniversary, well, that's happy anniversary. But, but really, I, I love giving gifts. 
And maybe you've had the experience. Maybe you love to give gifts too where you've, you've had a gift for someone and, and you, you wrap it and you put a bow on it or have somebody wrap it and put a bow on it and you've got their name on it and you've got it sitting there on the table for them or under the tree for them and, and you're excited about giving that gift. And it's got their name on it. It's, it's for them. But at what point do they actually get to experience that gift? At what point do they get to enjoy whatever's in that box? Well, that happens when they receive it. That happens when they take it and open it, and then it's theirs, it's in their possession. But until they receive it, it's not in their possession. And friends, that there's a picture there. Salvation is a gift of God that He has given, but it's not in our possession. We don't actually receive it, he says, until we confess Christ as Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. Romans 10. Until we repent of our sin and turn from it and place our trust and our faith in Christ as Lord. And until that happens, that gift remains unopened. But when we open it, when we receive it, oh, we experience all that it has to offer. And it's not just a saving work, it's a sanctifying work where God then begins to root out these sin issues in our life and, and calls us out of the world and sets us apart. It's a, it's a gift from Him. And it's a gift that continues. It perseveres. Which brings us to point three. Genuine faith is marked by perseverance. Genuine faith perseveres. How do we know someone's faith is genuine? Jesus says it clearly. Those who endure to the end will be saved. A genuine faith is a persevering faith. Now, verses 4-6 through six here are, are difficult verses. There is a lot here. We could spend a, a series of Sundays and still not cover everything in these verses and all the different perspectives people have. I, I have volumes in my office that, that are just on these three verses. And so my goal this morning is not to open up a, a fire hydrant of doctrinal teaching and just throw it all at you. But, but it's to kind of bring all that in and just, just look at this in, in its context. I mean, this was a letter given to the church. It, it was intended to be read. And, and there's some shock value here. There, there's a warning here. and it, It's meant to just kind of hit us. And right after this, he's going to bring on this, this assurance. And so those are meant to go together. And that's why you can't just kind of parachute in a Sunday here and there. You've got to stick with us as we walk through these books so you can understand them in their context. But, but I want to do my best just in the time we have this morning just to, to, to give you two thoughts on these verses 4 through 6. One that I think is... It is fairly prevalent in the church, but, but is an incorrect understanding of this passage, I believe. And the other, at least what personally I think, is the intention, the original intention of what the author's saying here and what God intends for us to have in the church today. So let's start with the misunderstanding of this passage. And this misunderstanding comes when we just turn to Hebrews chapter 6 and we start at verse 4 and we end at verse 6 and we just sort of cut and paste that passage and put it over here to align with our theological position on salvation. It comes when we don't consider it in its context. But when we do that, when we just take these verses and read them, then that leads us to the belief that we can lose our salvation. I mean, just consider what the verse says. If you don't know anything else around it, 
It's impossible in the case of those. And, and who, who does this sound like? Those who have been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Who, who does that sound like? A Christian or a non-Christian? It sounds like he's talking about a Christian here. And what does he say? So it's impossible for, if, if that's where you get this, for, for this Christian and then they've fallen away. That the indication then can be that they, they were a Christian and now they've fallen away and they're not a Christian. And so this is sort of a proof text for many who say you can lose your salvation. I, I've had conversations with, with many people who believe you, you can lose your salvation. And often this is the passage that they'll go to. But, but there's several problems with that argument. The first one, and I think one of the most basic ones is this, that... that when someone says, and if this is you this morning, if you are someone who says, well, yeah, preacher, that, I mean, that sounds like what I believe. And then my question to you is, well, if you lose your salvation, can you ever get it back? If someone falls away, can they come back? And, and I think universally in the conversations I've had, people have said, well, yeah, they, they could repent and come back. If your understanding of this passage is that someone who's lost their salvation, then continue reading the passage. So it's impossible for that person who is seemingly a believer and then seems to have lost their salvation, it's impossible to do what? To restore them again to repentance. They can't repent. And why can't they repent? Because they're crucifying Jesus all over again. They're saying His death the first time was not sufficient. Yeah, he died for my sins, I was saved, but I've now lost my salvation, so apparently it wasn't sufficient for everything. He didn't die for that sin of leaving him, but now I'm back. But wait a second, that death wasn't sufficient, so Jesus has to be crucified all over again. So, so you can't argue this passage, I don't believe, to say that, that you can lose your salvation. You can't argue that reasoning without then saying, and you can never get it back. Now, that, that's, that's not where I'm at. I don't believe that's what this passage is saying. And primarily, I don't believe that because you've always got to read Scripture within the context of Scripture. And what's the context of Hebrews? That the context of so much as Hebrews is kind of this, this wake-up call. It's this warning. He's talking to people who are struggling with immaturity in their faith and, and they're struggling with persecution and they're being tempted to walk away. And he gives them this, this clear warning about walking away. And, and I don't think that's intended to say to them, well, yeah, you can be a genuine believer and then you can walk away. No, because then he follows it up with giving them this great message of assurance that we'll look at in a couple of weeks. So it doesn't fit in the context of Hebrews and it doesn't fit into the context of Scripture as a whole. The, the overwhelming message of the Scripture is what we talk about all the time here. It's what we sang about this morning. It's that, that our salvation isn't dependent on us holding Jesus fast, but Him holding us fast. I think it was Pastor John MacArthur I heard say it the first time, if you could lose your salvation, you would. I mean, you would. I can't even keep up with my keys. And when it comes to my faith, I am dreadfully inconsistent. And I fail, and I struggle and I doubt and I sin if this whole thing rested on me and my ability, then I would lose it in a heartbeat. But the overwhelming message of Scripture 
is that this isn't just dependent on us. But God's sovereign hand is around us. We are in Christ's hand. He is in the Father's hand. What does he say? No one can snatch you out of my hand. There's double surety there. It says we're sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. There's triple surety there. It says we can know that we have eternal life. 1 John 5 says if you have the Son, you have the life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And he says that right after giving this strong argument about don't love the world and don't go after the things of the world, but, but press on in faith and stay true in your faith. And if you have Christ, then you have eternal life. And so, that, that's what I've been preaching consistently over the last nine years here. We, we can know, we, we can have assurance. Well, we'll talk about that more because Hebrews is going to talk about that. So, so if he's not saying... That you can lose your salvation. Well, what is he saying? Why say this to a group of people who are believers and who seem to be struggling? And again, there's different perspectives, but, but here's where I land. I think he's giving a warning here. And I think he's giving a very sobering warning. And I think the warning is this, that, that if you walk away, if you reject the salvation that Jesus offers you, then you are lost. That there's salvation nowhere else. You're not going to find another Messiah. You're not going to find another atoning sacrifice. That This is it. And if you reject this, if you reject the Gospel of Jesus Christ, woe to you. It's meant to wake us up. It's meant to sober us. It's meant to bring us to serious cause and consideration as to what our faith is and whether it's genuine or not. And it's also meant to inform us and how we are to respond to those who have fallen away. To the Kevins. And every one of us probably knows a Kevin. Somebody grew up in the church. Somebody walked this aisle or another. Somebody who was in this baptistry or another. Someone who maybe was up here helping to lead worship one Sunday. Somebody who went on the mission trips and they, they did all the things. And at times, maybe we looked to them and said, man, that, that, that young person, they've just got such a strong commitment. And then one day, their attendance becomes sporadic. Maybe it's after they graduate high school, college. We don't see them so much anymore. How do we respond to the Kevins? Well, you know, he's got a good heart. <laughs> he's got a good foundation. He, he's just out there, you know, maybe sowing some wild oats. or You know, the, the, he's okay. He, he'll be back one day. We, we don't have to worry so much about him. Or the Sheilas. I mean, I've seen a lot of people like this just in my time in our church here. Folks who come enthusiastically some who walk the aisle their first or second sunday here they're, they're so excited about joining the church and getting involved and talk to them about the gospel yes i believe that i believe i believe i want to live for jesus and months go by years go by where are they how do we respond to them 
Usually we see them, hey, we miss you at church. How can I pray for you? What can I do for you? We hope to see you soon. Oh, yeah, I'll be, I'll be back. Yeah, I'll be there next Sunday. They're not coming next Sunday. Or the Geralds who are here Sunday after Sunday. But there's absolutely no discernible difference between their life and the world around them. That there's no marks of the gospel. They say things at times that you just kind of cringe a little bit. How do we respond to those people? Well, you know, they're, they're faithful. They come to church every Sunday. But friends, the reality of Scripture is, is that church attendance doesn't mean we have genuine faith. And, and not coming and not being involved and separating ourselves from the body is actually a, a pretty strong indicator that we don't have genuine faith. And so we need to be burdened for these folks. We, we need to be in prayer for them. We don't need to just invite them to church. We need to invite them to the gospel and to repentance. And we need to be warned that they may not have faith at all. And you may hear that and say, well, I don't know about that. I mean, how, how do you know that? Sounds like we're, we're judging people. Yeah, the Scripture actually calls us as believers to judge one another. That's a biblical command. Don't have anything to do with the outside world. There, I mean, judgment to offer them, but the body were to ju- you're to judge me. I'm to judge you according to the righteous standard of Christ. And so the question is: so, so is there a biblical example? Is there a picture in the Scripture of someone who seems so on fire for the Lord and a part of the church, and then they just walk away, and that's an indicator that they were never actually saved to begin with? Because that's what I believe this is saying. I don't believe he's saying here that they, they were saved and now they're not. I think he's saying, well, genuine faith perseveres, and so since it didn't persevere, they weren't genuinely saved to begin with. And we have a picture of that. 1 John 2.19. Again, this comes in 1 John as he's again speaking sternly about don't love the world, don't love the things of the world, don't be swept up in the world. That, that, that's what causes so many people to seemingly fall away. And then he says this about those who, for the love of the world, they they turn against Christ. He refers to them as those who are anti-Christ. They're against the things of Christ. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. And he's saying they went out because they weren't really part of us. Well, whatever it was, external motivation, an attempt at morality, religious pressure, their, their family, just this desire to fix themselves, whatever it was, they weren't really ever of us, and that becomes evident over time because eventually they leave. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, if, if they had had genuine faith, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They would have endured. Why? Because genuine faith perseveres. But they went out. Why? That it might become plain that they all are not of us. He's given us a warning here. And the warning is that you can see the light of the Gospel and you can taste and see that the Lord is good 
And you can come to church and you can get excited about worship and you can feel a sense of peace and joy and excitement about the Christian life in your life. And you can go on mission trips and you can talk to people about Jesus and you can teach a Sunday school class and you can preach through the book of Hebrews and not have genuine faith. And the evidence of that surfaces when you do not endure. So how, how can we ever have assurance? How, how can we ever know if, if this is so vividly true, if, if this is a warning to not walk away with the understanding that we could walk away and that by walking away, it would show we never had genuine faith to begin with. How, how can we ever know that we have genuine faith? Well, he goes on to talk about that. Point four. It's because genuine faith produces fruit. Lasting fruit. Enduring fruit. Fruit until... The end. And then he gives this picture. And it's a picture a lot of you probably can understand. Many of you grew up in farming. Some of you still farm part-time, full-time. You understand this, this agricultural picture that he gives here. Let me just read it again. Verses 7 and 8. He talks here about the land and says, For the land that, that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, it receives a blessing from God. We're in a time here in Kentucky when things have been rather dry and, and you can just look around, you can see stuff turning brown and then all of a sudden this last week we got some rain and this week we might have some rain and, and you don't have to be an agricultural genius to look around and see as things are growing up. Well, that, that's a blessing, isn't it? I mean, maybe if you don't like mowing the yard, it's not, but... But, but for many, their, their livelihood depends on this rain. And there's a blessing to see it. it. Why? Because it's bringing growth. It's bringing maturity. That's a good thing. But notice the other example he gives. But, if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Is there some land that's just, it's just worthless and covered with weeds, thorns, thistles? You, you just got to burn it all off and start over. So what, what does this have to do with genuine faith? Well, friends, it's a picture that we see consistently in the Scripture. Of a genuine faith is a fruitful faith. And that which is not genuine will not last and will not produce lasting fruit. It's the picture that Jesus gives in Matthew 13. You remember the, the, the parable he gives there? The sower goes out to sow, sow the seed. He's got the seed that falls along the path and the birds come along and snatch it up. It bears no roots. And he's got the other seed that falls on the rocky ground and it starts to try to grow, but, but it gets trampled on. There's, there's no root, so it quickly dies. It's got the seed that falls among the thorns and it appears there's some growth, but soon those, those thorns and weeds just kind of quench it out and, and it just dies. But then there's the good soil. And the seed planted in the good soil, not only does it grow, but it, it multiplies and, and it spreads. And Jesus says here, this, this is a picture of the Gospel. That there's some that when they hear the Word, the enemy just snatches it up. There's no root. There's some who seem to receive it real quickly with joy, but there's no real root there. It just gets trampled on. There's others who, perhaps for a season, it looks like there's growth and there's something coming up there. But then 
then the world around them just quenches them out. They, they love the world more than they love Jesus. It might take weeks. It might take years. It might take decades. But eventually we see there is no lasting fruit. But that is so different than the good soil and the seed that grows in it. There's the blessing. There's the multiplication. And so there's this picture of genuine faith producing fruit. He says, you look and see the land. And what is the land categorized by? Is it thorns and thistles? Where do we see that in the Scripture? Genesis 3, the curse. The fall. It's the curse, thorns and thistles. If that's what the landscape of your life looks like, there's no genuine faith there. You are lost and you are outside the grace of God. You're you're not responding in faith. But but if there's fruitfulness... If there's a crop, if there's a harvest, what does that remind us of? Ultimately, of the land of promise. The land flowing with milk and honey. The the true promised land that we're called towards. That that we will enter into through our faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And between this day and that, he, He puts before us this picture. Which one of these is categorized in our life? You might say this morning that... Well... I believe I've got genuine faith, but man, it sure feels like thorns and thistles right now. I hear you. But if we have genuine faith in, in the midst of our suffering and our trials and just being overwhelmed by temptation and falling into sin and, and failing in the midst of that, we, we hold fast and we press on. Because this is not the promised land. That, that is to come. And so we, we press on to the land of blessing. Understanding that we see the curse and the effects of it all around us. But but genuine faith endures and genuine faith presses on. And so when we face whatever it is we face, genuine faith helps us to stand firm and to walk forward. And so there's encouragement here, but, but there's warning. And so what do we do with this? Well, that's the last point, point five. What do we do with this text? I believe as a result of what's being taught here, that that we should fear, have a healthy fear, a biblical fear of falling away from Christ, and we should pray for those who have seemingly fallen away to have genuine faith. See, you cannot lose what you never had. It's not impossible to bring someone to repentance who never had it to begin with. And so we pray and we plead that they might come to genuine faith because what they walked away from, while it might have given the appearance of faith, they went out from us because they were never of us. And we should have a healthy fear, friends, of falling away from Christ. That, that's the warning here. That's what's meant to just hit us. And the truth is, for many of us in our immaturity in our faith, we do not soberly consider that warning enough. But we need to. One of the scariest verses for me in all of Scripture is Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that last day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? 
And then Jesus says, I'll, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I, I fear that day of reckoning that I or one of you or many of you might stand before the Lord and say, but Lord, <laughs> we gave to the building fund in your name. And we bought a bus in your name. And we built a church in your name. And we went to Poland and West Africa and East Asia in your name. And we did all these things in your name, Lord. Preached through the book of Hebrews in your name. And that we might hear those words. I never knew you. And how could that be? Because we are easily deceived. Because we are content to stay immature and not work out our salvation with fear and trembling as the Scripture calls us to. And so we need to soberly consider this. And we need to genuinely pray for those who aren't here or anywhere else this morning that they might come to a genuine understanding of the gospel. We need to live with the reality, friends, that walking an aisle when you're 10 years old doesn't guarantee you anything. And sitting in a church pew for seven decades of your life doesn't guarantee you anything. But genuine faith, saving faith, lasting faith, well, there's your guarantee because that will persevere till the end. And if there's no perseverance in a person's life today, let's stop pretending that they're okay. And let's lovingly, graciously, boldly go to them with the gospel, the only gospel that can save. This isn't just a problem in the modern church. This has been a problem, obviously, since the early church. I'll share one example of this in a person's life as we close. In 1712, a young man named Joseph Hart was born and raised in a Christian home, he, he was raised very much in this context of he heard the gospel and seemingly responded to the gospel. He walked the aisle, he got baptized, was involved in the church. But, but as he grew, his desire for the world and the things of the world was so much greater than his desire for Christ. And so he, he fell away, he, he walked away. He did not have genuine faith. He spent decades of his life indulging himself with every pleasure he could find in a sinful world. And on a day marked by God in his providence, when he was 45 years old, he happened to find himself sitting in a church listening to a sermon that he didn't want to hear. But God broke through in that sermon and brought his dead heart to life. And Joseph came to a true, genuine understanding of Christ. And he, for the first time, came to understand what genuine faith was. And he repented of his sin, and he placed his faith in Jesus. And he started to grow, and grow, and grow. That that growth led him to write hymns. And after a couple of years of writing hymns, he composed a book of hymns, and we're going to sing one of them today. Come ye sinners, poor and needy. But I want to read it to you first, and I want you to think about the words written by this man in his mid-40s who had tasted and been enlightened and had heard the good news and seemingly had responded to it and yet would later find he wasn't genuinely saved. 
And in his poor, needy estate, he understood his desperate need for Jesus and he called out. And through this hymn, he invites others, even today, to realize their estate and to come to Jesus. And so, hear these words. Come ye sinners, poor and needy. Hymn 323. Come ye sinners, poor and needy. Weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, love and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh. Come ye weary and heavy laden. Lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requireth is to feel your need of Him. And then He gives this word of response. How are we to respond? I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms. In the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. He is the greatest gift you can ever receive, friend. He is worth more than the riches of this world. Will you receive Him by faith? If you would stand and let's sing this great word together. And as we do, we invite you to respond as the Lord leads. If you find yourself today in a place where, where you don't know, you don't have certainty that you have genuine faith, you're beginning to wonder, do I, do I really have this enduring faith? Then the good news of the Gospel is, Today is the day of salvation. And you can cry out to Him. You can call out to Him. You, you can come forward and profess Him publicly. You might have questions about the Gospel. I'd love to talk to you today or any day about that. Or it may be that, that you are weary today. And you're worn out today. You need somebody to pray with you. I'd be privileged to do that. Others would as well. And so let's respond as we sing, let's respond as we pray, as we repent, as we come in the name of Jesus. Let's lift our voices together.